Hey, welcome everybody. Thank you for tuning into News of the Money World. This is the first one of the year, 2024. And uh, man, there's lots going on. Rupert, how are you feeling today? Stable? Oh, I'm feeling great. There's, um, yeah. oh, it's, it's an awesome time. Great time to be an investor. Like pretty scary time to be an investor. Lots and lots of news happening. So I'm yeah. just glad to be back to be able to talk about it with you. Yeah, no, it's good. Same here. Like I've been watching with real full-on interest, just where interest rates are going. Are we going to go higher for longer or get lower and sooner? And there's a lot of, I guess, uh, instruments on the Reserve Bank of New Zealand's instrument panel. Immigration yep. would be one. GDP is another one. It's all reading some pretty weird stuff. And I think just like when you're flying a plane, sometimes the instruments can lag or they can lead and it can be a bit misleading when you're at almost like a phase transition. So your, what we were saying before we hit record was interesting. You were kind of alluding to the fact that um, unless there's some pretty serious legs, we are kind of heading for a little bit of a train wreck in terms of the New Zealand economy. Do you want to elaborate on that? So it's good that the private conversations because public. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about, oh, no, we won't talk about that stuff. Yeah. Let's go, let's go one step back. So last yeah. Friday, um, an amazing headline where chief economist from the ANZ came out saying she thinks actually based on the very tight employment market we're likely to need another two rate hikes um, this year whereas previously most economists have come out saying no 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 we're done uh, if anything we might be starting to reduce um, the OCR by the time we get through to May mm -hmm. and so this is kind of an interesting one how much of it was a headline who knows um, but then of course this week uh, we, we've had a whole lot of other economists come out and say the opposite and say, well, actually, we don't, we don't think much has changed. We know unemployment is a lag factor, and we know that that often falls well behind economic downturns. Um, and so I think the economics community is a, is a little bit split at the moment, going, is it kind of um, going to go up, or is it going to come down? I come at it in what I was saying before is, Look, I'm, I'm really confused at the moment about kind of what's happening in the state of the economy. Um, we have last kind of last, back in the last year, on a per capita basis, we're at negative 3% GDP. Um, and that is massive. Like, that's one of the worst readings since the, the GFC. The only thing holding the top line economy up is immigration. And without that, we'd be in a pretty deep recession. The second point is all of that immigration should have led to lower unemployment because it's, it's kind of low end. Uh, a lot of it's kind of the, the construction workers, the agricultural, seasonal workers, a lot of that kind of stuff which is coming in. So there's just a few things that, that don't make sense. But then you, you also anecdotally, when you're talking to employers or you're reading some of the stats from some SEEK, People are finding it easier to find workers than they've found for the last kind of five years. I mean, even going back to COVID days, uh, I'm working with a company at the moment that's looking for a CFO. And we've kind of, if we'd done this 12 months ago, we would have had kind of one or two. We've had 10 really great candidates. And so I think everything that we're reading shows that it has rolled over. Things are changing, uh, except for the employment data. And um, yeah, I think that's the big risk that we have here is that if we're consistently waiting for that employment data to roll over, if we go too far, um, by the time we actually get confidence enough to make a decision, it's going to be too late, right? And my personal view would be minus 3% on a per capita basis. That shows the economy is in a pretty dire state, um, and I'd be acting on that sooner rather than later. 
So the policymakers are in the car, facing backwards, looking at where we've been, trying to drive where we're going. And it's probably not the best way to run an economy. But part of me just wonders if the even the narrative is a lagging indicator, like they're going to do what they're going to do. But the reasons why they're going to do what they're going to do will be defined later on. And what I'm alluding to is the fact that it feels like there's almost an advantage that New Zealand has in the fight against of inf- in the fight against inflation if the if the OCR stays higher relative to say the US Fed funds rate like if the US Fed funds rate drops before we do then our dollar strengthens yeah. Yeah. and that actually deals to a part of the inflation problem that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand can't touch. And so I wonder if that's part of the strategy is just to kind of draw things out a little bit longer. What do you think? Potentially. So definitely higher exchange rate does lead to uh, lower prices on all of our imported goods. But you've also got to remember we are an export-led economy, right? And so the flip side is that creates more damage to our economy as our farmers, all of our commodity exports um, become cheaper and cheaper um, in New Zealand all term. So it's, look, it's, it's, it is a really challenging one um, and it'll be interesting to see what's happening um, yeah. and where we go from here. It's interesting, yeah. It's like, do we, do we nail the, the households with 200% higher mortgage payments again? Well, we probably hit the limit there. It's like, where do we place this pain to deal with the, the fact that, that really it was a policy error, in my view? Oh, how do, and, and it's, well, a global policy error, right? Let's not blame it all on, on Adrian or I think it's a combination oh, come on, of, why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> a combination of the fiscal spending as well. There are quite a few things and, and issues here. Yeah. But I do, apart from the labour stuff and some of those domestic things around housing, which let's be honest, 250,000 new immigrants coming into the country means that housing will always be an issue. Mm. Um, interest rates aren't going to solve that problem. Yeah, I, most of our inflation is imported. And so it's kind of, yeah, I, I, I do continue to fear that um, we're looking for the wrong things here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to, uh, well, let's, let's not move on from the central bank. Let's stick with the central bank just because the, I, I just love love kind of um, looking at what they do because I just incre- I, increasingly I feel like they are the ones who are probably going to be gathering more and more influence and there'll be a centralization of decision making going on within the Reserve Bank of New Zealand rather than the retail banks that mortgage holders typically deal with. And so I'm, I'm alluding to the debt to income ratios yep. and already the Reserve Bank of New Zealand decides what the interest rate is, or they influence what the interest rate is. Uh, Retail banks don't necessarily change the interest rate up or down depending on the risk profile of their borrowers. The rate is often just the rate, and they make a credit decision independent of that. Then we have the loan-to-valuation ratio restrictions, LVR restrictions, which determines how much of a deposit or how much equity someone needs to be able to buy a home, whether it's their own home or an investment property. But now thirdly, we have the debt to income ratio, which is kind of like taking the third leg away from what the real retail banks used to exclusively do, where they used to assess borrowing eligibility based on income. And they're now setting a macro, like a, an, an overlay type of regulation on top of the bank's credit decisions to determine um, that at a certain point, you have to have six times or seven times your income. And that's kind of like the limit is in terms of what you can borrow. So that's been a significant kind of um, discussion probably over over a little while, but it now appears to be coming more real. And my view is that it's not so much about the impact on the market today in New Zealand. 
but it's the fact that there's more of a collection or concentration of power occurring, which may lead to further volatility in interest rates in the future. That's a bit of a controversial view, but what are your thoughts? I find it kind of interesting, right? Um, I find it fascinating that the, um, the Reserve Bank is now sole mandate is employment. Oh, sorry, is uh, inflation. And then they've got rid of the house price stuff. They've got rid of the, um, the, um, the employment mandate. And now, now they're doing this. And so, I, look, I haven't looked at this in a huge amount of detail. So I'm just kind of curious as to why. They'll be saying it's due to the stability of the financial system. But to be blunt, yeah. household house prices as a, as a percentage has been coming down. So I'm just a little bit confused around why. And, mm. and why do we need to do this now? Mm. And I so also I, I, fear around the unintended consequences, right? So kind of Herald were pretty good with an article uh, a couple of days ago talking about how actually under these new debt-to-income world, the average, if you earn an average wage in Auckland, you're nowhere near being able to buy an average house. And so it's kind of, yeah, does the fear for me is it kind of, for a lot of people, it's just going to make it a hell of a lot harder to buy a house on the way through, particularly when you combine triple CFA, these rules, um, it's definitely going to make life harder for people. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. And it, it will lead to a concentration of wealth as well. So inequality gets worse, the more concentration or the more centralization the power gets, in my view, again, yeah, um, I'm just trying to, be, trying to be controversial. But let's, let's talk about the US because there's no shortage of controversy in 2024. It's an election <laughs> year in the US. And if, if it feels weird in New Zealand, like what we started with, where we kind of don't really know whether it's higher for longer or lower and sooner, and bank economists aren't really agreed on interest rates, well, over in the US, it's no different. And we are seeing disinflation, um, but we're not really seeing the in core inflation happening. So let's start there. Um, inflation outlook for 2024. What's your views around the US? Look, at this stage, the US looks as though the inflation data is coming in better than expected. So better than expected means lower than expected. It's uh, an interesting article out this morning. Medium-term inflation expectations are lower than they've been for the last 10 years. Um, and so everyone is now expecting them to kind of fall and, and fall pretty dramatically from here. Yeah. Um, and that's, to be fair, that's even been agreed by the Federal, Federal Reserve um, and Jerome Powell coming out uh, in December and then again in January, talking about how interest rates are unlikely to go any higher from where they are. So, look, I'm not one to go against uh, the kind of prevailing narrative for the kind of the economics world. So I think probably we are seeing, getting close to the end of it. But there are going to be a few risks, right, with what we're seeing in the Middle East. Does that actually drive um, a whole lot more um, inflation as oil prices kind of spike if kind of the Suez Canal gets even harder? Um, and there's still the fiscal spending, which is happening in the US as well, right? Which um, yeah. I think is a massive risk and also a massive driver of a hell of a lot of this inflation as well. So I yeah. think it will be a slower path than what the market is predicting. Um, but I think people have spent way too long now talking about how interest rates are not going to go higher um, for that to happen. I think we might just might be kind of rather than looking at a May uh, cut, I think we're probably looking at kind of July, August, kind of pushing that out a little bit. Yeah. Um, as the data gets there as well. Yep. So another interesting piece that I read a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was talking about how in each of the previous tightening cycles, I mean, sorry, loosening cycles, it moves extremely quickly. 
So 2007, uh, or very early 2008, basically there was only a 20 basis point change in um, the unemployment rate. And over the course of six weeks, they managed to knock about 1.25% off the US federal funds rate. And so I think all of our forecasts, as they always are at the moment, are this nice steady kind of contraction. Um, that'll be very different to how anything has happened in the past um, if that's where we land on this. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, and there's one strand of what you were saying before. I just want to magnify that a little bit because in New Zealand, we had a change in government already yep. last year. The US, maybe we see a change in government this year, I guess. Uh, but there's this thing called fiscal dominance which, from what I understand, it just means it's kind of like crowding out. When the government gets more involved and they try to support sectors of the economy that are struggling under the weight of inflation, including themselves, struggling under the weight of interest rates being high, I should say, they, in so doing, they actually create an inflationary mess that needs to be mopped up by the monetary side, which explains why we have higher interest rates for longer when we have more fiscal dominance, when government is bigger. We've kind of turned the corner, I hope, with the change in government, where maybe it's not growing government so much anymore. But what's your general view on the, the fiscal dominance picture of the US versus New Zealand and how it relates to the whole lower uh, and sooner narrative with interest rates? The US government definitely has a much smaller part of the economy than here in New Zealand. I think here in New Zealand, we're running at about 36 37%, whereas in the US, it'll be about 25%. Um, of government spending. Right. The, the difference is, though, the US have got massive, massive deficits, and so they're, they're spending way more than they, they potentially can. Right. I think a lot of this analysis, I think you're 100% right in that what we have not seen, particularly over the last two, three years, is fiscal and monetary policy working together. I mean, imagine a world where um, the government kind of goes, cool, we're going to accelerate or decelerate on certain projects, depending on kind of what's happening in the economy and, and all of those kind of things. Um, at, yeah, so the current world, I think fiscal deserves a lot of the blame um, for the inflation, kind of with that massive ramp up in government spending. And that, to be fair, that's happened all over the world. It's just not in New Zealand. Though there are a whole lot of things we're spending increases have are needed and have been needed for a very long time. Things like healthcare, education, a lot of those sectors um, have been kind of underloved. And at the same time, as we move into a world of um, as we move into a world of um, an aging population, that stuff's only going to get harder, right? I think we're dreaming if we don't think the government and state spending will become a bigger part of our economy just purely because of an aging population. Yeah. Yeah, well, you nailed it. And I, 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 hate, I hate where that goes, where there's an alignment more between government and central banks. But I guess what you're saying is that there kind of has to be so that there can be better coordination. There's no way they'll ever do that. Yeah. They, the kind of medium term planning from a government agency? No way. Well, we'll see what happens with um, the future of money, right? Where it becomes a lot easier. It's kind of like you put the tools in place now saying you're not going to use it now, but later on, I think that's where it becomes useful. Yeah. Um, so I guess one, one of the things that I've been thinking about when I look at the US market is I look at the Magnificent Seven, the tech stocks, and I see them kind of pulling the weight of the overall index, almost kind of hiding the fact that 
without tech, the share market is kind of like, meh. It's not really that exciting unless I'm missing something. Uh, the tech stocks are really supporting it. And like the the forward earnings are amazing. Uh, people are probably factoring that in, maybe even too much. But there's this concept in uh, physics that I remember from school, right? Like, which is yeah. there's speed and then there's acceleration. There's the rate of change and then there is speed or the rate of change and speed. Kind of like with inflation, disinflation is just the speed changing, but it's still going in that direction. And with growth companies, especially in the tech space, they're being valued, I suspect, based on their acceleration. But at some stage, it's inevitable that they have to have a leveling off of that acceleration. They might still be going fast, but they're not actually changing in speed. Therefore, the calculations need to adjust. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? I 100% get what you're saying. So at the moment, those companies trading on 30 times PE um, because they seem safe, solid, rock-solid businesses with high growth rates. At what point do they come and return back to the market average of, of 20 times PE? Yeah. Um, and actually, that's a, it's a really big question going on right now because we've seen those valuation multiples significantly expand over the last um, three, four months. But earnings haven't necessarily kept up, right? So we've gone stock markets up kind of 20% or 15, yeah, almost 20% in the last um, three months uh, in the US. But earnings are kind of remaining relatively flat and relatively muted. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. My, my view on that and is that I look, what we would expect to happen is as the growth rates start to fall, we will start to see those valuations come down a little bit. Um, but I think the difference between what we see now for not all of the tech companies and not all of the Magnificent Seven is it's really hard to see and understand what's going to throw them off their game, right? You look at a Microsoft. I mean, that's a business which has been going for 30 years and just gets stronger and stronger every, every year. Apple, maybe it's China that throws them off. Admittedly, there is competition in that space, unlike Microsoft. Mm. I mean, Facebook does it, TikTok. I, I, or Meta, sorry, now. I, I don't know, right? They're, they're big companies, they're strong company, ability to grow, which, mm. yeah, so I'm kind of not sure when that slowdown happens at, at mm. will. But the problem is if you start predicting that now, um, you have the high chance that you miss out on a whole lot on the way through. Because um, it's even more interesting, right, when you think about Google and Meta and even Amazon, fundamentally. All three of those businesses should be extremely cyclical right advertising we know advertising is cyclical um and let's be honest google and meta are advertising businesses uh, hmm. that's what they are amazon supermarket is basically a retail business again we know retail cyclical um, and that's what's really interesting where we are right now as well where we've got three of those kind of six of the magnificent six because tesla's gone they've wiped out and lost it all um but three of that magnificent six are cyclical businesses coming into recession and that's what I find kind of fascinating about the fact mm. that they're still valued at 30 to 35 times yeah. PE. I know. And, and AI is the obvious thing that, that I kind of look at. Well, these tech companies are just supercharging themselves by implementing AI. And that's maybe one of the factors. But it's also a picture of the tail eating the head in a sense that um, the way that advertising revenue is going to be spent online is going to be quite different in a world where AI is searching out content now versus 
you just playing the algorithms on search engines like that seems very old fashioned. So the Google model and the Facebook model of, um, you know, businesses trying to advertise on that, that's being disruptive massively. And I just so, wonder how that changes things. The AI thing, I, I heard a really interesting perspective on AI uh, last week. Um, and it was so actually, let's let's have a real conversation about how much AI is going to change anything, right? Because what we do know, Siri, I mean, Apple, Google, these companies have put so much money into their voice, into their voice assistants and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and they've done such an amazing job at it. Yeah, so the, the, this article was talking about how actually the current phenomenon around AI isn't really that different to what those two have been doing for a very, very long time. Um, and actually, is it really game-changing or is it kind of evolutionary? The only thing that OpenAI did was create a slightly better front-end to allow people to see and call it AI. And so that's, that's the challenge, right? And I think that's, that's going to be the conversation that I, I think will be the narrative over the next 6, 12 months on AI. Yes. How much of it's real versus how much of it's bluster? How yes. much of it is also uh, people able to afford to deliver against it? Because coming back to the processing power uh, that you need to deliver on AI, it's insane. Yeah. To be fair, the market definitely believes this is real. I mean, we've got S&P 500 um, now hitting all-time highs of 5,000 all over again, uh, something yep. that was thought about as unthinkable three or four months ago. And so the market's getting so excited by the combination of high-tech, of AI, um, lower interest rates, soft landing. But yeah, it's, it's the Goldilocks scenario is definitely there. Yeah, interesting. And subject two, and this is something that I've been watching a little bit, and we'll move on and talk about crypto next. But the one thing that I've been watching in the US with a lot more interest, just partly because it's kind of conspicuously absent with most things that I'm reading, is the commercial real estate situation oh, in the yes. US, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm really keen to kind of go deeper into this. And I'm just not sure um, who, who I can talk to around this. But the, the idea is that during COVID, working from home, that's transitioning back, but it's too slow. There's still large amounts of office space and retail that is underwater because the tenants are unable to pay the rent, basically, or there are no tenants. And unlike during the pandemic period where there's a lot of bailouts for people struggling to pay their mortgages and, and even rent in some situations, there's not really a lot of bailouts happening to these landlords. However, as it relates to the banking system, that's where I'm quite fascinated because there's a lot of assets on banks' balance sheets that are not looking too good. And yeah. at some stage, there might need to be a move to preserve the system almost more so than the participants. In other words, people who have these mortgages, if they can't pay them because there's no rent coming in and the values have dropped by like cents on the dollar now, um, what does that look like from a systemic point of view? So I'm kind of wondering if we're going to see another round of banking failures. We've seen something interesting happen with one of the New York banks recently. So this is a really, really fascinating area, I think, to watch because it kind of gives us a clue as to when we might see interest rates drop because they have to, not because they should. You know what I mean? Yeah, but what, 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 so I think there's two things, right? So what, what we know is that for a lot of smaller banks, particularly in the US, a lot of those smaller regional banks, um, commercial real estate loans can make up up to 20% of their book. 
Um, and that is huge, right? So the bigger banks, it's typically smaller in that kind of 5 to 10% range. Mm. Um, and the same dynamics that we're seeing here, to be honest, you've got a combination of New York, for example, is running at a 20% occupancy rate. Pre-COVID, that was running at kind of 3% occupancy rate or 3% vacancy rate. Yeah. Um, you've also got the interest rates where previously you're, you're kind of funding the stuff at 2%, 3%. You're now funding the stuff at 9%, 10%. And so it is kind of pretty scary where it's going to go. Um, I don't think there's going to be any desire to bail out landlords. But what we have seen in the last kind of um, probably, well, let's be honest, in the last 15, 20 years, whenever a bank fails, uh, government will step in and, and solve the problem. And I don't think this is going to be any different. Um, I don't think it'll necessarily result, and I don't think it'll necessarily result in uh, interest rates or, or too much damage to the economy, um, mm -hmm. because yeah, the, the Federal Reserve will step in and rescue these banks and protect depositors on the way through. They've become yeah. very, very, very good at arranging shotgun marriages, um, and so get ready, we're probably about to have a whole lot more of them uh, in the US banking sector. Banking consolidation—you see it everywhere, right from the very top down. Yeah, but there's 4,000 banks in the US, remember, yeah. uh, which is absolutely insane. Yeah, yeah, compared um, to New Zealand, right? It's, it's hard, to, hard to get our head around that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's move on to, to crypto, specifically Bitcoin. Of course, um, Adrian Orr actually just came out. I was telling you this before we hit record. Just came out and said that Bitcoin is not a means of exchange, nor is it a store of value or a unit of account. Yet people try to use it as that. I think what's so awesome about this quote, I'm going to keep it in my scrapbook of things I'm going to show in the future, perhaps, but the, um, you know, like a mortgage payment might be up 200% in the last two years. That doesn't feel very stable, but he's calling Bitcoin um, or crypto not a stable coin. Like he was also quite critical of stable coins as well. Um, not that I'm saying that he's wrong. He's, I'm sure he's got a point around the edges there, but it just goes to show that the um, the central banks, while they are open-minded and they're quite keen to use the technology they're not quite keen to use something that is public freely available uncensorable distributed they want to use something that's centralized but on the topic of bitcoin nine etfs just over nine etfs i think i wrote down here somewhere um now have 10 billion dollars of assets in so at the start of this year yeah. we had the approval of bitcoin etfs and nine of them now have a combined value of over 10 billion dollars inflows are going bananas vanguard is still sitting this one out pretty sure that was a good decision i'm sure they're thinking but what's your view like we're sitting at bitcoin at 50 grand now roughly what's your view on bitcoin etfs generally good bad otherwise i personally love them um i think one of the biggest barriers to people investing in bitcoin has been the need to set up a wallet the kind of needing to kind of or if you didn't want to set up a wallet then you needed to kind of invest through an exchange or something like that that you didn't really have any confidence in or, or weren't really sure so for me i think these etfs are awesome because they allow the everyday person to go and invest safely and securely uh whether it's fidelity whether it's blackrock whether it's vanek to be perfectly honest companies that you know um, have had a huge amount of diligence done on them to make sure their systems are safe and scalable. I mean, even Grayscale, which was kind of the first of the big mutual funds, they haven't had any issues uh, in the past either. So look, I think it's gonna make it a lot easier for people to invest. You then have the, the second part of the story, uh, which is what does that do to institutions? So if I think about a business like us here at Cotter, if we had to go set up wallets and kind of go and do the full-blown um, custody ourselves of crypto, that's really, 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 really difficult. 
Mm. Um, so for us, we invest through ETFs um, because we've got the infrastructure, we can do that in and out, we know exactly how that works. Um, and so I think you're going to start to see a whole lot of other institutions doing this now um, mm. because, again, it's, it's building credibility in the industry, making it easier for the industry, um, and I think that's a great new story. Yeah. Right? The fact that so. over the last kind of month we've had $3.5 billion of net new inflows into the asset class, that, that's a good thing. Um, and I think what we will see is as I think a lot of institutions and a lot of people will be sitting there kind of watching, thinking, how does this play out? Where does this go in the next couple of weeks, in the next mm. couple of months? Um, and once we start to see a little bit of stability around those ETFs and which ones are going to be the winners and losers, then mm. I think you might start to see some institutions kind of get in behind a couple of them as well. And we're already seeing that with Fidelity, like re redoing yeah. some of their funds to include Bitcoin. Even their conservative fund will have an allocation towards Bitcoin, some of them. Um, oh, wow. And so what, what I think is really interesting, what, what really gets me excited as an advisor is just looking at the world ahead where we'll now have access to some tools that give genuine diversification to investors, kind of good in a long-term downward trending interest rate cycle, but we need something that with a little less positive correlation to everything else, right? Something that zigs for the zags. And Bitcoin is not perfectly negatively correlated, but it does provide a bit of that potential for stability when mixed with the traditional stuff. So I think just as it relates to mainstream investing, this represents probably for the first time in a long time, some genuine, I guess, just genuine ingredients that can provide for ultimate diversification, not just same, same, right? It's got to be different enough. And Bitcoin is different enough, I think, to actually create some real value there. So Look, I good. taught her and I've kind of said for a long time, I, I believe it. That's why we launched the fund, isn't it? Um, I, I do hope you're right. Um, but uh, time will be the only thing that tells. I mean, yeah. we do know, I mean, Adrian Orr to a certain extent was correct, right? We do know uh, if we want it to be a true method of exchanging, using as a money exchange, we want it to be um, a store of value. The volatility has to go. Mm. Um, and so we need to see it stabilised. But mm. one of my hopes, and this is potentially a pipe dream, is that um, as the ETFs, uh, because they're so easy, all of a sudden you've got a whole new world of investors where it's really simple to get in and out of the asset class. Mm -hmm. And so as the price drops, if you believe in the cyclicality of, of Bitcoin, which most of us do, which is four years on one, or three years on, one year down, um, then in kind of once you, it's pretty easy to buy the dips uh, we can do, when you can just buy those dips using an ETF because you can make mm. that decision in half an hour and the trade will be executed immediately. That, and hopefully. That we have never had that before. Yeah. No, and look, I guess what I'm wondering, though, the easier it is to get in, the easier it is to get out. And that's also my concern, is that I just wonder, as Bitcoin grows in a wider catchment of adoption, people kind of getting in there using their brokerage platforms rather than having to download a wallet, that's great. That's so much easier to get in. But maybe if they don't fully understand the asset class and they kind of still think that, hey, the more volatile it is, the more we should play with it rather than the more volatile it is the more we should hang on to it for a long time. Um, I wonder if people will let go during those, you know, those down years. So it's green, 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 red. Uh, if it's on that red time, I wonder how many retail investors will just drop what they have. That would be my concern. Do you, do you feel like that and could be a risk? I think that's a massive risk, and I think it's likely to happen. But what we do see often, historically, 
any market where you improve the ability to access that market, improve the liquidity profile, that does stabilize, that does assist in stabilizing that market, right? Because you've got a much larger pool of investors. And that's where I think this is so important, right? You are likely to see the retail guys who will react when the market falls. But the hope is that there will be a whole series of institutional people there to pick up and they've done more of that, right? And I think that's where it gets a little bit different. Sure. And I guess you have that flow of passive funds as well, right? That just keeps on coming in. Oh, that wall and- of money. Well, potentially. I mean, we, we need to see. So I'm kind of interested to hear what you've just said on Fidelity. I can't wait to go have a look at their models. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we need it to be part of a an asset class and a portfolio of asset classes before we start to see that wall of money. Because let's be honest, right? The three and a half billion net new money that we've seen since the, the ETF is lodged, that's pretty small in the scheme of things. Massive in the scheme of crypto though, right? So what's Bitcoin's market cap at the moment? It's about eight hundred billion. Yeah. Yeah. Um of which we know kind of sixty percent is is held up in long term holders. So it, it, it's small in the scheme of kind of the total markets, $4 billion, but actually in the scheme of crypto, it's still kind of potentially 1% of everything available, which is now held in these uh, ETFs, which is yeah. amazing when you think I know, about it. I like love that. it. It's, it's this unstoppable fiat force meeting the immovable, finite, digitally <laughs> scarce asset of Bitcoin. It's lovely. I yeah, just love it. Exactly. Awesome. All right. Well, we've had a good chat. We've covered um, New Zealand debt to income ratios, the US market, um, and a bit of crypto to finish up on. So I think we still left enough on the table. Maybe Taylor Swift, Peter Shift, and Super Bowl could wait till next week. Uh, exactly. All right. Good chat today, awesome. Rupert. We'll catch you in the next one. Eh? And nice to speak to you. And we'll speak next week. Cheers.